I would say most people, certainly in this country, are looking for information to reinforce what they already believe. They're not open to what Woodward and I have called for half a century, the best obtainable version of the truth. That's Carl Bernstein. I'm Margaret Sullivan, and this is American Crisis, a podcast that asks the question, can journalism save democracy? I'll be looking at this question with the help of some wonderful guests with an emphasis on how media and politics have changed between two hinge events in American history, the Watergate scandal in the 1970s, which brought down an American president and changed politics forever, and January 6th, 2021. By the way, all our episodes live over at margaretsullivan.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff, including written pieces and discussion threads. You can also support the show there or sign up for free, so each episode of American Crisis lands right in your email. That's margaretsullivan.substack.com. My guest today is Carl Bernstein, of course, the famous Watergate reporter who, with Bob Woodward, unveiled all the criminal misconduct of the Nixon administration that ultimately led to President Nixon resigning from office. He's an early idol of mine and one of the people who drew me into journalism because of the power of the work that was done at the Washington Post in those investigations. Today, he's an author and a frequent commenter and certainly a very acute observer of the journalism scene and how journalism and government and democracy interact. Welcome, Carl Bernstein, to American Crisis, Can Journalism Save Democracy? My podcast looks at that question through the lens of the Watergate scandal and January 6th, 2021, So you are, in many ways, the perfect guest because you have lived through and had a role in covering, to varying extents, both of those things. And I'll mention up top here that I also want to talk with you about your book, Chasing History, and we're going to return to that. It's a great book, and it looks at your career uh, at the Washington Evening Star before the Watergate era. Let me do, just say that the subtitle tells you as much about the, the book, which is Chasing... A Kid in the Newsroom. Exactly, because I, I started at age 16. And, yes. And, and the book only covers from age 16 to 21. Right. It doesn't get into the famous Carl Bernstein. Exactly. It's, uh, it's before that. So let me start with, uh, with what I really am compelled to talk with you about. So... What I'd like to hear from you is what the media atmosphere was like in the early 1970s as the Watergate scandal began to unfold. And specifically, how did it, I mean, it's so very different from today, but if you could talk about what it was like, what, you know, what was the sort of the ecosystem of the media then? Well, let let me back up because... uh, when you started with the name of the broadcast, Can Journalism Save Democracy? Uh, I want to start there, if we can. Sure. Because I think the answer is no. Okay. We're in a cultural moment, uh, and I use the term culture because I think we who are journalists as well as people in politics make a huge mistake in thinking that journalism and politics are somehow uh, 
exist apart from the larger culture in this in this country. So tell me more about that. So can journalism save democracy? No. Uh, and and does it have a role? Of course it has. It, of course it has a role. Okay. But, but I think what we have learned in the in the last decade, uh, and I don't think Donald Trump comes out of nowhere. We had a cold civil war in this country, cultural cold civil war for 25, 30 years, uh, in which we became more and more divided. And then Trump ignited the cold civil war. And we are past the point of ignition. You know, we, we, we've got an awful lot of flames licking at the, at the whole edifice. Mm-hmm. And that's where Trump took us. And uh, but we are in a cultural, not just moment, but in a, in a cultural existence in this country for a good while now, where democracy is failing in so many regards. So so we can do all the reporting that we want, but there has to be a larger cultural consensus that is affected by uh, by citizenry mm-hmm. that says, we'll take this set of facts, uh, we'll take what journalism has developed here, and we will uh, act accordingly toward democratic initiatives and principles. That hasn't happened. We've had the reporting. We've had great reporting during the Trump years. We've had some great reporting toward that during that cold civil war. Uh, it did not move us away from authoritarianism and anti-democratic reality, it didn't stop where we are, you know, where, where we are now. Okay. And we are in a terrible place in this country in which democracy, in many regards, uh, has not prevailed and authoritarian instruments and authoritarianism has. Interestingly, uh, all over the world, there there is a trend or whatever we call it, away from democracy. A number of democracies, I don't know the number, 15, 20, in the, in the past 10 years or so, have become authoritarian states. Right. Interestingly enough, they have all become it through democratic elections, not from coups. Maybe, maybe one. And then you take a country like Hungary and you see what happens. And you also see yeah. what has happened in this country toward authoritarianism, et cetera. So I think we need to start from that point. No, I I take your point. I would like you, though, to describe what the how the press functioned at the in the era of Watergate. That's very different from today. Well, you know, just lay it out for us. Well, I think it goes in tandem with what I've just said about the larger landscape. Of, of democracy and what journalism can and can't do. Because they're, one of the things that, that's happened in this country and, and other democracies uh, in the 50 years since Watergate, and particularly since media configuration has, has changed so radically over, over that period is, and social media has added to what I'm about to say exponentially, that People are, and you can only generalize so much, but I would say most people, certainly in this country, are looking for information to reinforce what they already believe. They're not open to what Woodward and I have called for half a century, the best obtainable version of the truth. They're looking for information 
to reaffirm their political, social, religious, cultural beliefs. They're looking for ammunition. They're not looking for the truth. They're not interested in contextual, real truth or facts. I mean, that's true. Surely that's not true of a majority of the country. I have no idea. I'm I'm not at all sure that you're right about that. Uh, Certainly, I think, is there a tendency toward that in uh, in a majority of the country? I would say yes by by simply looking at, at... at polls in in terms of how we vote in this country and what the poll, the exit polls show and what polling questions show. I'm not at all sure that it's not a majority of the country. And that is the prime, let me finish there if I may. That is, I believe, maybe the primary difference in our journalistic ecosystem. We tend to look, those of us in the media, at media institutions as being sent the central question. I think the central question is, is, a, is a back and forth between media configuration and institutions and the consumers of information, that there now is a bottleneck. And that, that, so what happened in Watergate? Up until Nixon's tapes were revealed, uh, and, and for younger listeners, uh, those tapes... Nixon had taped absolutely all of his phone calls and uh, Oval Office conversations with his aides. And those tapes revealed the extent of Nixon's criminality, how deep Watergate went uh, in terms of the culpability of the president of the United States, as well as the, the whole notion of undermining democracy, that Watergate was really about a president of the United States who wanted to undermine democratic, the democratic electoral process through a huge campaign of political espionage, sabotage against his opponents in the op- opposite party, as well as ideologically using these instruments of sabotage, uh, etc., wiretaps, illegal break-ins, ordered from the White House, uh, Dirty the tricks. president on, on, on tape saying uh, a year before the Watergate break-in, I want you to firebomb uh, a Washington think tank. And he keeps saying, you know, burn the place down, et cetera, et cetera. So what happened in Watergate is up until the revelations of what was on those tapes, despite all our reporting, and the reporting of others, uh, Nixon still had the support of most people in this country. Then when the revelations were so uh, explosive as to what was on those tapes in terms of Nixon's criminality, then the consensus move toward Nixon had to leave office, including the Republican Party that courageous Republicans were really, as they switched their pronouncements and beliefs about what should happen to the president, uh, that he had to leave office, that he had to be impeached, that he had to be convicted in the the Senate if there was going to be a Senate trial, that drove Nixon from office. We have nothing similar that has happened 
in the Trump presidency. To the contrary. Uh, well, there have been so many times in which people have said, oh, surely this will be the thing that will, you know, finally put so, him so in, his, in a position. His conduct is impervious and has been impervious to uh, what happened in Watergate, which uh, there, rather than a consensus that he should leave office, there has been perhaps a consensus uh that he ought to remain in, in office with, a, you know, and two impeachments failed uh, to result in a conviction in circumstances, uh, I think, far more egregious than what Nixon did. So it sounds like you believe that if Watergate happened in today's media and political ecosystem, the result would not have at all been the same. That would be my guess. Uh, but I would attribute it more to where we started uh, this discussion. I would attribute it more to the people of the country, to the citizenry, and where we are culturally and politically than I would to the, uh, to the media itself. Don't you think, though, that right-wing media has been a huge factor informing the way the citizen reacts to things? Yes, I think, look, I think the most important political force, purely political force, or it's, it's media as well, uh, over the last five, 40 years, uh, is, is Fox News. I don't think there's any question about it. And it, it comes after it. It's not 40 years old. Well, maybe it no. is at close to... No, it's 1996. 1996, okay, so... so. A little less than thirty years, and um, but I think it, it's unquestionably uh, the dominant change in our in our uh, political reality over that period of time. Its influence has been huge. Uh, it has helped change uh, the political and cultural dynamic in this country as as no other institution has, and it's not a it's not a not only not a traditional media staple, it is it's a political instrument. It doesn't pretend, or maybe it does pretend to be a new institution. And uh, but if you you look even what Roger Ailes, its its founding uh, presence, uh, and still a presence, mm -hmm. even though he has left us uh, and left before he died, he left five clocks. He got pushed out for whatever reasons, uh, but his his presence remained in terms of what Fox News is and was. It has mm. it, it is not a legitimate news operation. It is an instrument of ideology. And yet it is a source of information for millions of people. Yes, but I think we also need to look at, you know, the rise of social media. There are other right wing media also, you know, people always want to shoot the messenger. So we see that the so-called mainstream news media uh, is held in, in terrible disregard uh, by a huge majority, if we are to believe the polls uh, of people in this country. Uh, I think those polls are, are probably accurate uh, in terms of the disregard in which, quote, media are held. Um, but I don't think it's a sufficient explanation of where we are as a failing democracy. How well do you think 
the big respectable news organizations, the big newspapers or now digital media companies like the New York Times and the Washington Post and uh, the Wall Street Journal and others, how well have they performed in the current era? Well, I think in terms of, of covering the news, they've performed magnificently for the most part. You know, this book that I've written, which is a kind of rollicking account of this kid who at age 16 gets the best seat in the country. Uh, the book begins with uh, the Kennedy and Nixon uh, campaign, uh, which I was lucky enough to even cover at age 16 within weeks of when I had gone to, to work at the, at the Washington Star while I was still in high school. Um, that what the most important line in the book, though, I think, in many ways is, and it's a corollary to what Bob and I have called the best obtainable version of truth, the truth is not neutral. A lynching is not neutral. Right. That this idea of we're supposed to be, quote, objective observers uh, and split things down the middle, uh, is a yoke. This myth of objectivity has been a yoke on us in journalism for certainly since I've been in journalism, which is 60 something years now. And so you don't subscribe to that idea. Let, at let, all. Let, let me give you an example. As I said, a lynching is not, is not neutral. Well, are we, and I learned this covering civil rights and from great reporters who were white Southerners. Are we going to really give, let's take one of the things that in this book that I described is, is my interviewing the, the widow of one of the three uh, victims of murder in Mississippi, uh, Cheney Schwerner and, and Goodman, uh, drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry, uh, as Don McLean's ode would, would have it. That's about these three victims of horrible lynching, even though it, the instrument used was not a noose, but were guns. Are we really going to give half of our story to those who killed those people and their point of view? Are we really going to do that? Or let's take an easy, even easier example. Let's say there's a bank robbery. Guy goes in, and tellers still have money in, in, in the bank, which they probably don't anymore. And somebody said, give me all your money, stuff it in the bag, or I'm going to shoot you. And the teller stuffs it in the bag. The, the robber runs away, never heard from for the next two months. He's found two months later, 100 miles upstate. And uh, he says, no, I, I, I didn't do that. I've been here upstate. Listen, I got all these witnesses uh, that, that I've been here. I've kept a diary. Look at my diary. And meanwhile, there's a videotape from the bank showing him robbing the bank. Are we going to give 50% of the story to his alibi? Or are we going to go with 90% of the story about what's shown on the videotape? This idea of 50-50, of one side gets half, that we split this, and then we move to some kind of, and this gets to another place where we are in too much of media today, uh, particularly, I mean, we've had some examples of it of late, uh, especially in cable news at CNN, where, where the principal, John Malone, you know, the biggest cable operator in America, he wants to 
to have a, a centrist agenda. Well, centrism is, is as ideological uh, objective or can be as leftism or rightism. What are you, the idea that we have some desire that the best obtainable version of the truth, which is the basic mission of reporting, of journalism, the idea that this is either tethered to left, right, or center is nuts. And so that, that what we need to do is remember, no, the truth is not neutral. It's not. A lynching is not neutral. Well, it, it sounds to me as though you you do think that the mainstream media is pretty flawed. If you're seeing this performative neutrality that you're talking about, that's not the magnificent reporting that you mentioned. So which is it? No, I think, I think actually we've gotten better. I think there is there is less. I think in, look, I get back to the question of what is news as the determinant of uh, starting point, uh, and I think that that our definition of what is news, generally speaking, at major uh, media organizations, is probably better than it was at the time of Watergate. I think we are much more sensitive to all kinds of questions. Uh, left, right, and center, and making a judgment of whether they're newsworthy or not, not because of their ideology, but because of their substance. I think we're much better okay. in many regards. If I were to look at the front page of the Washington Post or the Washington Star uh, of 60 years ago, uh, I think there, it would probably reflect more of a reality of covering uh, who we are as as a people, as a community, uh, I think we're better today. Okay. And by and large, on in those major newspapers that we're talking about. Uh, well, the you Long, mentioned the, the Washington or, Star. The Star. But the, the, we, the, well, we don't have local newspapers to a large extent that's anymore. A, that's absolutely true. And that's a huge problem. Look, we, you started this by asking about the media equation today. Uh, look, institutionally, media is a totally different uh, proposition than it was 60 years ago or 65 years ago, I guess, uh, when I went to work 63 years ago. Um, that First of all, we have social media. We have the reality uh, of a different kind of communication system than we had. We don't have print newspapers as the dominant conveyor of news in this country or around the world, for that matter. It's, it, it comes through digital delivery. Um, so, so that's... that's we a, also a, have cable news, which we didn't have then. Again, and in this country, you, you had a news ecosystem in which the dominant newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, the LA Times, uh, a couple others, uh, Miami Herald, uh, it, it, you can go on, that those newspapers shaped and three television networks that had half hour, first they had 15-minute news broadcasts when, when I went to work, then they moved to half an hour broadcast. Uh, but, and, and what did those news shows do? They really picked up what was in the newspapers. They didn't do that much, really, 
original reporting. Uh, right. And so you that was the basic means of getting news. Where, and then you had two wire services or three wire services, the Associated Press, United Press, UPI, United Press International, when there was a merger there. Um, you had a very restrictive rather than expansive news media landscape in this country. And was that generally a good thing? No. I, 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 think, I think that uh, it res- seems like a lot of voices were missing. You had kind of a, a, a single point of view. Well, I, you had, yes, I think you, you did. You did not have, first of all, you didn't have diversity in the newsrooms. When I went to work at the Washington Star, we, we had no black reporters. The Washington Post had one or two black reporters. Uh, New York Times, one or two, I think. Uh, it, it, women uh, in the newsroom, gradually, but and the Star was, was exceptionally good in this regard. They were great women reporters, uh, three Pulitzer winners. The three Pulitzer winners when I went to work at the Star were women. Incredible. And uh, but it's we're we're also a different culture, a different society in 1960 uh, than we are today. But but do you, by do you and feel large, nostalgia? Do I feel you know nostalgia? I feel nostalgia for the atmosphere of of the newsroom that I went to work in. But do I feel nostalgia for uh, – we did great reporting at the Washington Star. We did great reporting at the Washington Post. Uh, The New York Times, we have a history of great reporting in this country. And at the same time, great reporting is the exception. You know, we're not too much different than doctors. You go to the doctor and uh, 10% of them kill you. Twenty uh, percent of them, you're going to leave about the same way you uh, that when you walked in. Thirty percent, you're going to be a little better. Uh, and, and a small minority, you get you're going to really be in, in the hands of geniuses that is going to make your life better, extend your life, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure that we're 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 so different. Uh, I think there are all kinds of problems that we have in journalism today. It, many of which we did not have, but but let's look at one that we've always had, and we still. I'm a college dropout. I think we need reporters who are didn't go to college. I think we need reporters who come from working class backgrounds. I don't think they they're in our newsrooms today, or well, in, they're not in the big newsrooms, our big institutions. I I think that's a huge failing. Uh, right. our media environment is out of touch and doesn't serve people reflective of that reality. Uh, we're a different country. We're a different world than we were. So, so let's talk about and live in the world in which we, we exist right. rather than so no, I'm not nostalgic in that sense. I, I'm for what do we do now? What do we do now? All right. Well, I'd like to ask for what your call to action would be for American citizens. Citizens or journalists? I'd like to hear your call to action for American citizens, because that's where you think democracy can be 
sustained? Well, I think part of it is to be open to the best obtainable version of the truth. That is, I think, a huge difference in our culture. And where are they going to find that? I think they're going to find it by being much more informed about how to process information. I don't know how, how you do it. Look, we're overloaded with information. Uh, we're, I, I come back to social media because the, the system of information is now generated to a disproportionate extent by social media. It's not that just that social media puts a lot of lies out there, that, that anybody can be uh, their own news organization and just put something out there and it's going to attract a, a following under the guise of, of factual or, or news, news or uh, anybody can do it. There's no, one of the things about the ecosystem that existed 60, 50 years ago is in these news institutions, you had a consensus to some extent about what is news and what standards would qualify as, as news. You had a curatorial function of editors. You had, you know, it, it, yes, it, it, was not, it, it was not of sufficient breadth, but in its lim- somewhat limited way, uh, it needed to be more inclusive, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one more reason I'm not nostalgic. But but it what we have now is a kind of anarchy, and it not only not only is it about untruth, misinformation, and disinformation being in the mix as much as the best obtainable version of the truth, and probably more so that it's dominant. That it's also the good stuff is selectively used and parceled out on social media and it gets it and it's disproportionately distributed on social media mm-hmm. so that well again as you said we get what's going to reinforce our ideas well well yeah yes that's right but in other words the, the circulation of uh, whether it's the Washington Post or Fox News of a particular story does not come from the Washington Post news site or the Fox News news site. It comes through right. a distribution chain of social media that is, that is simply picking up from those two sources, Fox or the Washington Post or whatever. Exactly. So, Carl, in your book, Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom, one of the things that comes across is a great sense of fun. And the book is a lot of fun to read, and I recommend it. Um, Is journalism fun anymore? And what do you tell young people who are considering journalism as a career? Oh, it's certainly fun for me. I still have fun doing it. I think there's there's nothing like getting on a good story and pursuing it. And the idea of, of the best obtainable version of the truth. And incidentally, the best obtainable version of the truth can uh, be a sports event, can be anything. You know, the idea that somehow newspapers 
and television news and all the rest was not also a, a vehicle for entertaining. Look at the number of comic pages that were in papers. The idea that, that feature stories, but they're also about, should be about the best obtainable version of the truth. So, yeah, fun is a real element of this. I can't imagine anything that'd be more fun than to be a reporter. Well, that's how I feel, too. And uh, but, but really, what the book is about, it's, it's about this kid, as I say, gets the best seat in the country, capital of the United States, with probably the best afternoon newspaper in America, and one of the five or ten great newspapers at, at the time in, in America, gets to cover everything from murders to uh, interviewing Barry Goldwater by ham radio on the day he's nominated to be president of the United States by the Republican Party, gets to cover every kind of story, gets to meet every kind of person, every president, uh, every, you know, the gamut, hospital workers, sanitation workers, murderers, uh, there's, there's, you know, who could have a better? Uh, and, and then you see also, though, how even though this book stops before I go to the Washington Post and Watergate, you see how the basic repertorial method that I learned with these great reporters, these three Pulitzer winners who were women at the Washington Star, uh, how what I learned there is just a, a logical progression to see how Bob and I covered Watergate and how this notion that I got at the star of the best obtainable version of the truth, how that extends to the Watergate reporting. Um, mm -hmm. It's the, you know, it, it's a little bit like you know, Mark Twain wrote, and I hardly want to compare me to Mark Twain, but there, he wrote a great book about his apprenticeship on, on the Mississippi called Tales of the Mississippi. This is about the apprenticeship of mm -hmm. this reporter and this right. apprenticeship in life as well, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. including the drinking, including the characters, including uh, all, all of street life. Right. And it's not you, uh, you were you were lucky, but you also took advantage of it. Yeah, look, pretty much everything I know about about journalism and reporting, I learned at the Star. I was able to enlarge what I learned, but the basics I learned in these five years, and I learned it from a group of people who were in themselves colorful, had the time of their lives doing what they loved, uh, and and also what's going on at the, in the country at the time. This is the era of the civil rights movement. It is the beginning of the Vietnam War. It is the election of Jack Kennedy. Uh, it is the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, and on and on and on. It is the height of the Cold War. Uh, all of those things I got to cover, uh, as well as executions and, and murders and terrible plane crashes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Well, Carl Bernstein, a great reporter and a great journalist, who says he's not sure— and doesn't really think 
that journalism can save democracy, but certainly has a role in it. Because the people have to save democracy. The people have it. All right, good. That's probably a good note to end on. Thank you so much, Carl Bernstein, for a great interview. Good to be with you. Thanks, Margaret. So my takeaways from this conversation with Carl Bernstein are colored, of course, by the fact that he was such an early influence for me and one of the people who, when I entered journalism in, well, in school in 1980 and then my career in the 80s and into today, uh, was so, so much of a factor for me. And I found it a little disheartening at first that he was so clear that he does not think that journalism can save democracy. But I think the rest of this episode shows that he does see the strong, clear interaction between the two. He's a great believer in the power of journalism and an admirer of the best of journalism today and certainly a critic of some of the right-wing, I don't know that we call it journalism, but some of the right-wing media that's been such a negative influence on how citizens share a common basis of reality. And of course, I'm also struck by his reference several times to his guiding principle to try to find the best obtainable version of the truth, which I think is a really powerful concept and one that has guided him and his former partner, Bob Woodward, in all of their work. And it's something for all of us journalists to to keep in mind and for news consumers, also known as citizens, to try to seek in the journalism that they that they look for and that they use and seek out as they gather information in order to do their job as engaged citizens. In addition to the podcast, you can find the full American Crisis Experience on my Substack, Margaret Sullivan at Substack.com. Please join me next week for the next episode of American Crisis when I talk with Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Ruth is an expert on how democracies can become authoritarian states, and she is the author of the critically acclaimed book Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present. Production services for American Crisis are provided by Voltage. It's produced by J.E. Peterson and edited and mixed by Tyler Morissette. The music for this show was composed by Crosstown Traffic. This is American Crisis. I'm Margaret Sullivan. Thanks for listening.